Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. Episode 27, Rulers in Christ's World. Life was very different in the world of Jesus, especially politics. In this lecture, you will learn about the three main leaders that shaped Jesus' time, Herod the Great, Herod Antipas, and Pontius Pilate. Drawing on the Jewish historian Josephus, you will discover the cutthroat way that Roman rulers managed provinces like Galilee and Judea in the first century. Understanding how leaders wielded power sets a glaring contrast to how Jesus carried himself. If you'd like to watch a video of this class or download the course notes, you can do so at restitutio.org. Here is part three from the Historical Jesus class, Rulers in Christ's World. I want to look at three rulers with you during Christ's life so you can understand how the world worked in his day. It's very different than our day and time. Our politics are, are very tame in comparison to theirs. And so the three individuals I want to consider with you are Herod the Great, his son Herod Antipas, and then Pontius Pilate. So to start off, Herod the Great was a colorful figure. His dad was an Idumean and his mom a Nabataean. An Idumean is someone from Edom, which is not part of Judea. It's a historic enemy of Judea, in fact. And uh, the Nabataeans were Arabs who lived off in the desert. And so the Jews never really accepted Herod the Great as their king. They felt like he was not ethnically Jewish, so they should not accept him as one of theirs. So what he decided to do was marry a woman named Mary Omne. Mary Omne was a Jewish princess, for real. And she was the granddaughter of uh, Hyrcanus as well as Aristobulus. These were the two main Jewish leaders when the Romans took over the land. And so she had a royal uh, pedigree that Herod felt would make people take him more seriously. And then if they had children together, Herod and Mariamne, then they could have someone that the Jews would accept better at, because that child would be a descendant, at least on the mother's side, of um, this prestigious family called the Hasmoneans. So anyhow, Mary Omne and Herod had a tumultuous relationship. And what ended up happening was, you know, when you marry a woman, you don't just marry one person. Uh, there's also in-laws, right? And so uh, Mary Omne's mother... Alexandra, she really, she really manipulated Herod into doing some things he didn't want to do. And it turns out that Alexandra, uh, Herod's mother-in-law, was good friends with Cleopatra, the famous Cleopatra of ancient times in Egypt. And uh, she convinced Cleopatra to pressure Herod, her husband, Mark Antony, into getting Herod to do things. And so Herod didn't like Alexandra meddling in his affairs. Um, and so he put a guard on her to watch her at all times in the palace. 
and she didn't appreciate that very much. So there was a lot of tension in the Herod household. And what ended up happening was Alexandra had two children. She had Mariamne, which was this Jewish princess that had married Herod, and then she had a son named Aristobulus, who was this very fine-looking young man, very well-built, very handsome in appearance, and he was the hope of the nation. You know, if they could somehow get rid of the Romans, this would be the one that they would install there. And uh, so Aristobulus, this would be Herod's brother-in-law, wanted to be the high priest. Now, he's only 16 years old, so, and there was already a high priest. So Herod didn't really want to do that, but his mother-in-law forced, kind of forced his hand, and he officially made this young 16-year-old the high priest, removed the old high priest, and made Aristobulus the high priest. Well, that didn't go so well. Because the people, you would think they would be horrified, but they loved having this young guy as their high priest because they felt like finally, you know, if he could just survive long enough and, and somehow, somehow he could lead the people again against the Romans and against Herod, who was the king appointed by the Romans. And so Herod decided that this kid was actually bad news, his, his younger brother-in-law here. And he ended up having him drowned in a fish pond while he watched by his servants. And, you know, if you think things were bad with his mother-in-law before he murdered her son, afterwards it was even worse. And so Alexandra was really mad at Herod the Great for having her son drowned. You know, of course, Herod said it was an accident. But, I mean, who, who drowns in a fish pond? Anyhow. So... What does Alexandra do? She sends word to Cleopatra that Herod just killed her son. She's furious, and she demands a response. And so Cleopatra leans on Mark Antony, who's the leader of Rome at the time, and he calls for Herod. He's like, Herod, you, you need to come meet with me. And so Herod's going to meet with Mark Antony, and he's going begrudgingly. He doesn't really want to be told what to do, and... He felt he had good reason to kill the boy, and so what he does is he puts his uncle Joseph in charge of these women, Mariamne and her mother Alexandra, and his order to his uncle Joseph is, if I don't come back, if something happens to me, just kill them, please. And so Herod leaves, and wouldn't you know it, somehow or other, those women, they found out about the kill order. They got it out of Joseph. Somehow they, they squeezed it out of him. And so Herod goes and he meets with Mark Antony and he basically says to Mark Antony, you know, let me rule my kingdom. You know, I'll keep the taxes flowing. I'll keep the peace. Just don't worry about it. And they end on good terms and Herod comes back and he's kind of happy. He's kind of upbeat. And when he returns, his sister and his own mother accuse Mariamne of having an adulterous affair with Joseph, his uncle, who was in charge of watching them while he was gone. And so you have to understand something about Herod. He, he ha, he's a very temperamental person, so he flies into a rage. Just even the, the rumor that his beloved Mariamne had cheated on him while he was gone. And he is furious, and she eventually convinces him, no, no I, didn't, I didn't do anything, and he believes her. And then she makes the mistake of asking the question, was it because of love that you told Joseph to kill me should you die? 
At which point, Herod the Great just loses it. He concludes the only way that Joseph would be stupid enough to tell her what he had commanded was if they really did have an affair. And so he immediately calls for Joseph and has him executed without allowing him to make a defense. And he has the mother-in-law bound in custody and really wants to kill his wife and then decides, because of his love for her, not to do it. And then civil war broke out. Mark Antony and Augustus fought against each other. For seven years, Herod had been the king, and he had supported Mark Antony. And so he continued to do that. However, Mark Antony lost. Augustus won at the Battle of Actium, and Augustus became the first Roman emperor. And so Herod was a little worried, because when you back the wrong guy back in those days, there's no concession speech. You know, you just kind of get executed or at least removed from office permanently. And so he knows he has to go speak to Augustus. He needs to somehow convince Augustus to leave him as the king of the Jews, leave him in power over this area. And he's a little nervous because his wife's grandfather, who's like 80 years old at this time, a guy named Hyrcanus, who has no political ambition at all, he, he's still alive, okay? And so Herod's worried that, you know, if things went sideways with him, then Augustus may make this guy in charge instead of him. So he allegedly catches Hyrcanus in a plot with the Arabs to overthrow the throne. And it's not really clear that he didn't make that up, or maybe he did, I don't, I don't know. And he executes uh, Mariamne's grandfather. So at this point, Mariamne, his fa this is his favorite wife out of all five. This is really his, the one he loved the best. Anyhow, um, he's, he's, he's murdered her brother and now her grandfather, but it will get worse. So anyhow, he has to go see Augustus. He goes to see Augustus, and just before he leaves, he's like, I need to put somebody in charge of my wife and her mother because they're just nothing but trouble. And he, got, he gets his servant, very dedicated, faithful servant named Sohemus, and he puts him in charge, and he says, look, if I don't come back, kill him. Again! And so he goes off to Augustus and convinces Augustus that he is the best man for the job, and he comes back kind of gleeful that he was able to turn Augustus towards him. And when he gets home, there's nothing but ice. Because once again, the women had found out from this guy that they were, or, they, they were basically going to be executed if Herod didn't come home. And so he's home all excited and sharing the news, and there's just no reciprocation. And so she groans. She can't hide her disappointment. She openly hated him. And Herod's sister took full advantage of the opportunity. She started spreading these long stories about how Mariamne was cheating on her brother Herod. And this went on for a whole year. And then came the fateful day. It was noon, and Herod was um, taking a rest. He called for Mariamne to join him in bed, and she showed contempt and insulted him for causing the deaths of her grandfather and her brother, naturally. I think that would upset anyone. And so at that same moment, Herod's sister had concocted this whole other plan to send in the cupbearer with this 
rumor about love potion that Mariamne had used, and it just set Herod off because he just couldn't take it anymore. He exploded in anger, and he had Mariamne's eunuch tortured. That would be the, the guy responsible for watching over her. And the eunuch didn't reveal anything other than it was when she talked to Sohemus that she got really hateful towards Herod. Well, Sohemus is the one that told her about the kill order the second time around. And so he immediately has Sohemus executed. And then he puts his wife on trial for adultery. They found her guilty. And then she was executed as well. Josephus writes about this. But when she was once dead, the king's affections for her were kindled in a more outrageous manner than before, whose whole old passion for her we have already described, for his love to her was not of a calm nature, nor such as we usually meet with among other husbands. For at its commencement, it was of an enthusiastic kind, nor was it by their long cohabitation and free conversation together brought under his power to manage. But at this time, his love to Mariamne seemed to seize him in such a peculiar manner as looked like divine vengeance upon him for the taking away of her life. For he would frequently call for her and frequently lament for her in a most indecent manner. Josephus could write, huh? And so he, he would call out for her. He got ill. He started to really become unhinged because he, alas, had executed his favorite wife. And so Alexandra didn't last much longer than that. Uh, she started concocting some plan, and Herod caught her, and so he had his mother-in-law executed as well. Later on, shortly after that, he found out his brother-in-law from a different wife named Costabaris hid these descendants of the old Hasmonean dynasty, the sons of Babas, and had them all killed. After that, he suspected his sons. You know, he, he married Mariamne, but then he had two sons with her. And he was worried that these boys were conspiring against him, and so he took them to trial, his own sons. And it was the Caesar himself, Augustus, reconciled them. He said, don't take your sons to trial, Herod, come on. Uh, but then four years later, he accused them of treason again, and this time he got a Roman court to find them guilty and had them executed. Although their children he allowed to live, the grandchildren of Herod, uh, through this line of his wife, Mariamne, the grandchildren are called Herodias, uh, that's a woman, and then Herod Agrippa, that's a man who later becomes very influential. A year after that, Herod receives a message from some wise men who are looking for a baby born king of the Jews, Matthew chapter 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, that Herod, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king, who had already murdered his, you know, all the possible heirs of this dynasty of the Jews, when he heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler 
who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. When you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And so the wise men, of course, they found Joseph and Mary. They found the child Jesus, gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And then Joseph was warned in a dream to flee because Herod was going to try to kill the child. He got up that night and went to Egypt. And so Jesus starts out as a refugee in Africa. So Herod was upset that the wise men didn't come back, so he ordered the execution of all the children to and under in the city of Bethlehem. Well, it's more like a village of Bethlehem at this time. And sent soldiers to kill them. A year after that, Herod brought his own son Antipater, his firstborn son, to court and requested a death penalty from Augustus, who agreed. And legend has it that Augustus once quipped, better to be Herod's pig than his son. Herod ate kosher. And so he executed his son Antipater. And just before he died, Herod rounded up all the leading men of the city of Jerusalem and brought them to the Hippodrome where the horses raced and surrounded them with archers and commanded that at the moment of his death they would rain down arrows on all the leading men of the city of Jerusalem so that when news came of Herod's death there would be weeping instead of rejoicing. And then he died and they disobeyed his order. So much for Herod the Great, who I like to call Herod the Worst. Herod Archelaus, Herod Philip, and Herod Antipas were the three sons to whom he bequeathed the kingdom. Herod Archelaus was in charge of Jerusalem and was so bad at managing things that the Jews sent a delegation to the emperor and the emperor Augustus removed Archelaus from being in charge of Jerusalem. We get this little snippet from scripture. This is Matthew 2.19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And so Jesus ends up in Galilee partly because of the Herodian madness that goes on. Here's a family tree of Herod the Great. And you can see that he has five wives. The first one he divorced to marry the second one, but I think he just kept on marrying them after that. And the number of his sons there, and the ones in gray, I think, are the ones mentioned in Scripture. Well, actually, that's not entirely true, but those are the more significant ones mentioned in Scripture. All right, so Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas is an important person. When Herod Antipas came into power, it was because his dad died, but Herod Antipas thought that he should be the sole one in charge. His, he should not have to share the land with his brothers. So he went to Augustus and appealed to be the sole ruler in charge, and Augustus said, no, we're going to stick with your father's will, and he was bitterly disappointed. He ruled from 4 B.C. to A.D. 39, which is basically all of the life of Jesus. Antipas was the ruler in Galilee. Beyond keeping the taxes, 
coming and keeping the peace, Antipas believed you needed to impress the emperors if you want to advance. If you want to get ahead, you've got to keep the peace, keep the money flowing, and do something impressive. And so what he did is he rebuilt a city called Sepphoris and renamed it Autocrateris, which is a, a word meaning rule by oneself. It was a, uh, a word that would give honor to Augustus. And this way, he was able to have a central base of operations from which he could tax the farmers. He built a, a wall around a city called Betharamtha and renamed that city to Livia after Augustus's wife and then later to Julius, Augustus's daughter. But then Augustus died and a new emperor came into power named Tiberius and that was in the year 14. So you just imagine this. He takes the Sea of Galilee and he renames it and he calls it Lake Tiberius. Who does that, right? And then he takes this old Jewish graveyard and builds a city on top of it, which, you know, angers all the you know, ancestral Jews there, and names it Tiberius. And that's a base of operations from which he can tax the fishermen in the Sea of Galilee. He wanted Tiberius to think, look how well Antipas does with Galilee and Perea. I will put him in charge of everything. But it didn't work out that way. Jesus, uh, or Jews, did not accept Antipas as one of their own. If they didn't accept Herod, his father, they really didn't accept Antipas because Antipas, his mom was Samaritan. Jews don't like Samaritans anyhow. And then his father was half Edomite, half Nabataean. So he had basically zero Jewish blood in him. And so he decided, you know what? I need to marry a Jewish princess, just like dad did. Like it worked out great for him. So he marries Mariamne's granddaughter, Herodias. But there's only one problem. Herodias is already married to his brother. So in Rome, as things happen, he swept her off her feet and convinced her to divorce her husband, Herod Philip, his brother, and marry him instead. At which point, a prophet named John the Baptist had something to say. This is Mark 6.17. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, yet he heard him gladly. Such an interesting way of saying it. So Herod has John in some sort of jail, and it says in Matthew 14, 5, that and though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. And so John the Baptist is there in Herod's jail until the fateful day when he has this birthday party and he invites his courtiers and his officers and the leading men of Galilee, and they have a banquet, and Herodias' daughter, a girl named Salome, dances before Herod Antipas, and he's so impressed, it says in Mark 6, 22, for when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests, and the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, 
Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. Wicked, wicked woman. And so Herod Antipas sent guards down to the jail and executed John, brought his head on a platter to the girl, and she delivered it to her mother, Herodias. Later on, Antipas heard reports about a new prophet named Jesus performing miracles. And he decides that he wants to arrest Jesus. And in this kind of interesting moment here, the Pharisees tip Jesus off that Herod is trying to track him down. Luke 13, 31. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. And so Jesus calls Herod Antipas that fox. And then, of course, we know that at his trial, Jesus did stand before Herod Antipas, and Antipas did not want to get involved in it and sent him back to Pilate. And so that's the second ruler that we need to know to understand the time of Christ. The third is Pontius Pilate, who was the Roman governor of the area of Judea, especially Jerusalem, uh, from 26 to 36 A.D. And so Jesus' ministry happens roughly around 30 or so A.D., so that's right in the middle of um, Pilate's tenure. According to Philo of Alexandria, a Jewish theologian at the same, who lived at the same time as Pontius Pilate, Pilate was a man of very inflexible disposition and very merciless as well as very obstinate. Philo despised Pilate for his corruption and his acts of insolence, for his rapine, for his habit of insulting people, for his cruelty and his continual murders of people untried and uncondemned, and his never-ending and gratuitous and most grievous inhumanity. It's a direct quote from Philo, a contemporary. So Pilate was not a fluffy teddy bear either. Soon after Pilate took office, he had his army, his legions, bring their military standards into Jerusalem. And that included an image of the emperor Tiberius on them. And that was a problem because Jews don't like images. The the Ten Commandments say that you're not supposed to have any images. Uh, And so they had a, a response to that. They sent a delegation to Pilate, for six days, he wouldn't hear their case. They waited six days, day after day after day, for Pilate to come out. When Pilate finally did come out, he had the Jewish delegation surrounded with soldiers and threatened to kill them all if they didn't go home. At which point, these Jews fell to their knees, bared their necks, and said, we'd rather die than break the laws of our God. And Pilate was impressed, and he yielded and took back the images. After that, he used funds from the temple to build an aqueduct to Jerusalem. So the inhabitants of Jerusalem rioted, and Pilate, this is so crazy, Pilate had his soldiers conceal daggers in their garments and wear plain clothes and mix among the mob. And then he told the mob to go home. And they boldly defied him and insulted him 
at which point he gave the prearranged signal to his soldiers and they just started stabbing people around them, uh, wounding and killing people and causing a massive stampede. And that was how Pilate got them to listen to him. And uh, We see in Scripture in Luke's, Luke's Gospel in chapter 13, there's a report of a time when Pilate killed some Galileans and mixed their blood with their sacrifices. And I don't really know much about that, but it's some sort of slaughter in the temple area. Pilate sat, as, as you probably know, in judgment on Jesus, probably one of the many people he judged that day. The Gospels show that Pilate was not convinced that Jesus should be executed and that the Jewish leaders, um, you know, there was something going on, and yet they threatened him, and they said, look, he claims to be the Messiah, he claims to be uh, a king, we will tell Caesar if you do not execute him. And Pilate relented and ordered the execution. Later on in his term, Pilate put shields onto Herod's palace in Jerusalem with the name Tiberius on them. Again, another carved image. So the people sent a petition to Tiberius, Caesar, and he ordered them to be removed and put in Caesarea instead. The time for Pilate ended, his governorship ended, because of a complaint after he slaughtered a group in Samaria. There was this charismatic prophet who claimed he knew where the secret vessels were buried from the time of Moses on Mount Gerizim. So he got a big following and they camped out at the base of the mountain, and it swelled in size, and Pilate was worried it was some sort of revolution, and so he sent the soldiers in and just killed everybody. And that was enough that the Jews from the area were able to convince the Roman emperor that Pilate is bad and that he should be fired, at which point he was. And that was the end of Pilate's tenure. Herod the Great, Herod Antipas, Pontius Pilate, how the world worked in first century Galilee and Judea. These were not the worst Roman rulers, nor were they the best. They were, however, the men in charge of the affairs of the world when Jesus grew up and carried out his ministry. Based on their behavior, we can see they believed in the kind of power expressed through domination, that life was cheap, that they should identify and eliminate threats, that advancement came through flattery and excessive gift-giving, especially to Caesar, that the peace must be kept at all costs, and that taxing the people was how to pay for it all. And so, now that we've calibrated our historical lenses to see what was normal in the time of Jesus, I think we'll be able to appreciate so much more how magnificent and unique Jesus is against the background of his own context. If you enjoyed what you heard here, why not give Restitutio a five-star rating in iTunes or Stitcher? Doing so will help others find this podcast and inspire them to love God, follow Christ, and seek truth wherever it leads. Thanks for listening, and check us out online at restitutio.org, where you can find an archive of all the podcasts, as well as a bunch of articles and links to other resources. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.